to continue our study in Isaiah, to kind of recap where we're at, as you kind of see Isaiah 15 on your screen, what we did is we spent some time in Isaiah 14 trying to figure out who this day star is. And my, my assumption at the end of that was that the day star is number one could be the planet Venus, which is probably true because that was uh, symbolic of foreign worship. It could also be Sargon, the, Sargon II, who was a great ruler and called himself like, you know, the king of the universe. But it also could be symbolic of Satan himself and that he is the ultimate form of rebellions. And they can all be through this, uh, all be true, sorry, at the same time. That's where we left off. So what I want to do now is I want to move on to really several chapters because they're all similar and they're these judgment oracles. And I want to just kind of do some highlights because they get a little weary trying to read them all. I mean, it is God's word and I, and I do think we should take the time to read them, but it's not like it applies to us necessarily immediately or it's hard to kind of see, um, you know, where Christ is in it and stuff like that. And so I don't want to, you know, really kind of get bogged down in all the details of all these oracles. They're interesting historically. Um, if you want to know more about that, I, of course, have lots of resources. But I want to kind of, again, keep the main thing the main thing um, as we go through this. So I'm going to go to, uh, to the first one, chapter 15. And you'll see this popping up here in just a second. So it's an oracle concerning Moab. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to blow this up on your screen a little bit, see if this makes it a little easier to see. That should make it a little bigger for you. Um, an oracle is concerning Moab. And so it names all these different places and it shows how uh, Moab is going to be judged. So, so remember contextually what happens uh, in Isaiah 1 through 11, with the exception of Assyria, God spends most of his time judging Israel. So he's not, I mean, he mentions Assyria and how is Assyria is part of his, you know, his, his judgment, but that Assyria itself is also going to be brought low. But really it's not until these chapters that we get Babylon and Moab and all these surrounding areas called out. So now Moab is the one being called out. One of the ancient, the Moabites um, are just uh, to the east of Israel. They're one of the ancient enemies of the, of the Israel, the Israelites, if you read the old Testament. And of course there's also a hero that's from Moab. And uh, the hero, the hero that's from Moab is Ruth, Ruth and Naomi, right? Because Naomi goes there, her um, her sons die, and her daughter in law is attached to her, and she, so Ruth is a Moabitess. So we have a good Moabitess, a good Moabite um, mentioned in the Bible too. But generally, as a as a people and as a culture, they're a big challenge for Israel. So what you have is you have this oracle concerning Moab. And um, it's just all about how Moab is going to be laid waste. And again, traditional symbols of mourning. On every head is baldness. They would shave in this culture. Every beard is shorn. It was a way of showing that you've been defeated. They wear sackcloth. Sackcloth is itchy. It shows that you're you're in mourning again. Um, everybody's wailing and melting. And it names all these different city places. Again, if you want to look these up on the map, you can. It's not that important here. But the waters are in desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. It's it's absolute destruction for Moab. So God takes basically this whole chapter to say this. And it reads like this. You can see this. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone out around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglame. Her wailing reaches to Beer Elim. From the waters of Debon are full of blood. And I'll bring Debon even more. A lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. And that's how the whole chapter reads. It's just full of this kind of, and it's hard when, when it comes to God's word that you know what this is. I mean, it's obviously law, but it's hard to apply this scripture other than just saying, again, God is causing the rising and falling of nations, which is certainly a good thought and certainly true, but it's hard to kind of get much more out of this if you're really just kind of reading this text for what it is. Okay, so that's, that's basically what you see in Isaiah 15. Then you go to the next chapter, Isaiah 16. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion, like fleeing, like fleeing birds, like to the scattered nest. So are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. 
So now we get another uh, quote in terms of the people that are trying to flee. But this is interesting. We get a little gospel moment here. So I wanted to highlight this, starting in verse 3. Notice this is in quotes, okay? Uh, give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night and the height of the moon. Shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and their destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit the faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And then so we get again. So even the Moabites, notice this, that the outcasts of Moab, those Moabites who survive or the ones that leave, you know, it's not exactly clear if these are people who repented or if they're people that just escaped the judgment or, you know, read the writing on the wall, read the signs and they escape. Um, but somehow they're present with Israel and in the tent of David. So again, a descendant of David, we have somebody who sits and judges and the Moabites are actually going to be converted, it seems, or at least they're going to follow uh, the God of Israel. And then again, we get all these place names, right? We have heard the pride of Moab, his arrogance, his pride. So the, the, the country itself is personified. This is very frequent in the book of Isaiah also that you take a country and you call it a he or call it she or something like that. Um, we used to do that more often in English. We don't do it much anymore. Um, but it was very common in this culture to say that, you know, the ship of state that we, you know, or something like that. Um, is in good hands or in bad hands, the ship of state. And so in the same way, they would actually personify the kingdoms or personify these cultures. So mourn utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Hareshith. I mean, look at all these, these, uh, I mean, it's just funny. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be coy. It's just all of these cultural, very cultural specific things make this very hard to interpret. For the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Simba. Um, if the readers of this time would have understood where these places were. We don't. And unless you want to really study New Eastern geography, I mean, Middle Eastern geography, and, uh, you know, get a map in front of you, it's hard to kind of talk about this other than just showing you that this is, uh, that this is the entire culture, every geographic location, every part of their industry, every part of their agriculture, every part of their business field, all the things that they're proud of, they've been brought low. And now look at this. Um, so this is how this ends on Moab. When Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word of the Lord spoke concerning Moab. Uh, this is the word that the Lord spoke to Moab, Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude. And for those who remain will be very few and feeble. I mean, if there's if there's a if there's a law point on this, um, as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned, and you can you can ask me questions later if you'd like or put it in the chat bar or send me a message or something. But if there was kind of a law point to draw out of this, I guess it would be to, along the sentence, don't just trust in your strength that you may have at a time. You may have lots of people. You may have a big country. You may be rich. You may have the greatest military in the world, but God can still bring you down. And so we have Moab, you know, who's saying that he's in a high place. And, you know, even though you have all this great multitude, there's going to be very few that are left over. So it's a warning not to trust in our in our strength, whether it's as a country or as a people, um, because God can certainly, you know, take that out as well if he de if he determines to. Um, I'm not saying he absolutely will or absolutely won't. Um, I Only God knows the counsel of God, and I'm not a prophet like Isaiah. But it's just an interesting thought to think about here um, in Isaiah 15 and 16. The next one, we uh, shift countries. Um, so the next one here, we go to Damascus, which is modern-day Syria. And look, what it said, and look what it says here. Again, behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. 
Okay, and then we get another place names. And these place names we actually recognize. Ephraim is one of the northern tribes. It's one of the half tribes, of, um, a son of Joseph. So the fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord. Again, a remnant where? A remnant of Syria. So we have a remnant from Moab. And now we have a remnant from Syria. We have survivors of these Gentile nations. I think there's a theme there. God is trying to teach us something, and he's probably teaching his own people something, that there are faithful people in these other countries that the uh, Israelites probably thought were all pagan or all irredeemable or something like that. And that's not the case. We have a remnant of Syria here. Okay. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, as one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim, gleanings will be left in it, as when the olive tree is beaten. Two or three berries on the top of the highest bowl, four or five on the branches of the fruit tree, declares the Lord of Israel. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands, and he will not look at what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. I want to say something about this. This, this word asherim, um, you'll see this like as the Astaroth or something like that in other translations. These were sacred poles, and they would put like a pole. Think of a totem pole, only skinnier. And they would usually have some sort of um, cult practices that would go around it. The more lurid of them would have been fertility cults, but they had other types of cults too. And they were part of the religious uh, practices. So what God is saying is that um, man will look to his maker, in other words, to the creator and at the Holy One of Israel, to the true God, and he will not look at the poles that he made, the Asherim, or what his fingers have made. So something's going to shift in these pagan nations, even though that they're judged. And that day, their strong cities will be like deserted places of wooden heights and hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. And so it's interesting that God is saying that to the Damascus, even though they're not Israel, to the kingdom of Damascus, to Syria, hey, your salvation is in God also even though you may not be part of God's chosen people. And so that's part of the judgment. And so they had access to the gospel, or maybe not the gospel yet in the terms of Jesus, but in terms of the good news that God wanted to save them or God wanted to act. It's kind of a nascent or pre-gospel. Maybe that's more accurate to say this. And so we have this judgment of Syria. Okay, then we go to the next one. Isaiah 18. There we go. Cush. Cush is the region that is below Egypt. Um, some translations will have this as Ethiopia or as Sudan. Um, but ah, the land of wearing rings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by sea and vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a, mighty, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the earth who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown here. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look for my dwelling, like a like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. And by, by the way, in Hebrew, this is, uh, you know, very poetic. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a, pruning, a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. Then all of them shall be left to the birds of prey in the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts, from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation whose mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. So now Cush, the land of the region of Egypt. Notice it's, they have a very specific description of what they look like, a people tall and smooth. 
It's an it's an odd way. It means they have smooth skin. Does it mean they just look smooth? I mean, that's an interesting kind of debate that we could get into. They're tall. And um, so we think this is, again, the region south of Egypt, the Cushitic region. So uh, on the on the upper part of the Nile, um, if that's confusing to you, I'm going to use my hand on the screen. But if you're just listening on the podcast, um, which we'll get to you later, um, if you, you if you look at a map and I'm using my hand here, Egypt's the Nile River looks like it's going this way towards the north. So lower Egypt is actually up on your map. So lower Egypt is up, so which sounds contrary to our minds. But because it's the lower part of the Nile, upper Egypt is actually at the bottom part of your map. If you look at a map of Egypt, the upper Nile. And so where the upper Nile is and beyond is the region of Kush. So these are probably Africans. These are most likely Africans, people of African descent. So all there's different ethnic groups that are being represented here. With Damascus, you have Semitic people, Syrians, right? Moab, Semitic peoples, Arabs, you know, that's think Arabs or think Edomites, right? But then we also have Babylonians and Assyrians. That's another different culture ethnically. We have, we're going to later have Egyptians, another culture ethnically. And now we have Africans that are represented. We have all these different ethnicities who all have their own nations and all have certain amounts of power and prestige and, uh, and power plays on the world stage. And God is addressing all of them um, around the nation of Israel. Okay, so that's, that's what we have. We have Cush. This next one I want to spend more time on. This is Isaiah 19, and this is involving Egypt because there's an amazing church tradition that gets started out of this on this oracle concerning Egypt here in these first few verses here. Behold, uh, so I'm going to start just from the beginning, Isaiah 19. All right. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. This one right here, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. There's a church tradition, kind of a legend that gets started that uh, basically says something along the lines that when Jesus, as a baby, goes to Egypt um, to flee the wrath of Herod, that idols in Egypt fell over in his presence. This is kind of, a, it's, a, it's an interesting, again, it's a legend. It's not specifically stated in the text, but it's mentioned here in Isaiah 19 that when the Lord comes to Egypt, the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. So since Jesus is God in the flesh, the assumption is here is that the idols that are trembling here are the idols of Egypt. And so I'm going to tab over. Let's just make sure this works. Okay, I'm going to stop share. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so you should see on your screen. Yeah, you do. I can see that now. Um, a Russian icon of the flight to Egypt. So there's Mary uh, and the baby Jesus here. So Mary's kind of sitting up there. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, I apologize. You can't see this, but this is an icon of Jesus fleeing to uh, Egypt with Mary and Joseph. But there's uh, Jesus here on Mary's lap. Um, and there's Joseph leading them. And there's um, Joseph receiving the message in the dream um, from the angel. And then on the bottom of your screen, there's idols falling over. That's what these kind of these kind of clear objects are that are kind of crush crashing down because Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is going past these idols. They're falling down here on the bottom of your screen. Uh, a, a little easier one to see. This is from the Middle Ages by a guy named Melchior Baderlam, uh, Baderlam. Sorry, so Baderlam. It's one of those uh, you know Dutch names that I can't pronounce or Flemish names. Anyway. You can see here, there's a Jesus being presented in the table. I mean, in the temple, sorry, not in, the, but in the temple. And we have uh, the two turtle doves that Mary and Joseph, um, yeah, that they uh, sacrifice for Jesus. Um, but then they flee to Egypt. And as they flee to Egypt, if you look right here, where my mouse is kind of on your screen, and I can zoom in on it, there's an idol falling over again. 
I just zoomed in on it. So let's see if I can get over there. There it is. That's easier to see now. So this idol is cracked in half and it's falling off its pedestal because Jesus is going past it. So it's kind of an interesting interpretation of Isaiah. Again, I'm not saying that this is absolutely how this is you know, fulfilled, but it's interesting that in the medieval church anyways, they looked at this passage in Isaiah 19 with idols toppling in the presence of the Lord and assumed that this was fulfilled or at least partially fulfilled. When Jesus went to Egypt, when Jesus went to Egypt as a as a young baby, so anyways, you should just just to give you some visuals on that. It's fascinating to think about that um, when it comes to to Egypt. All right, so then it's a then God continues. So the idols are going to tremble. So let's just assume for the sake of argument that it has to do about Jesus. But if it doesn't have to do with Jesus, it's just God in general. Okay, and I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each neighbor against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. And so, and they will confound their counsel and they will inquire of their idols and sorcerers and the mediums and their necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. And so uh, it's, we have a civil war. Some sort of civil war is pretty, pretty obviously prophesied here. And if you know, if you look at Egyptian history, there were frequent uh, civil wars. When dynasties switch over, um, it was very common to have um, uh, people fight. In fact, really not until modern times do we assume the peaceful transition of power. You know, usually when there's a change in government, when the king died or you got a new leader or a new general or whatever it is, you would have civil war. People would fight. Look at the ancient Romans, right? You've got Julius Caesar against Mark Antony, even though they were both part of the same government initially, right? Um, you can look at uh, the kings of England. You can look at, in this case, ancient Egypt. And so a peaceful transfer of power was not common. Um, for George Washington to do what he did and step down peacefully after two terms is pretty amazing, actually, in the context of world history. And then John Adams to Thomas Jefferson, when you actually have a, a change in political party and, again, a peaceful transition of power, it's very, very rare that you see that in world history. But in our case, we have seen that in the United States, and we set an example um, for, for different people around the world on the peaceful transfer. Um, but in ancient Egypt, that was not the case. And so we actually see that civil war and none of the religious uh, ceremonies will avail of it. And then, of course, just like any of the other judgments, the, uh, the, the landscape around them is also being judged or at least uh, uh, suffering because of it. And so the waters of the sea will be dried up. The river, the river is mentioned. What is that river? It is the Nile River. You'll hear people say that the Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt, um, that without the Nile, there would be no Egypt or there would be no civilization. And I think that's pretty true because they wouldn't be able to eat. But because of the Nile River and because it's got such a large drainage basin, they're able to, uh, to, to irrigate that and, uh, and to make canals and to actually eat well. And so for the Nile to dry up and to diminish would have been a death sentence for that civilization. So this is quite the threat coming from, uh, from God in, in this, uh, uh, from Isaiah. Okay, see, uh, you see the reeds and the rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile. And all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away and will not more. The fishermen will mourn and lament. All who cast hook in the Nile et cetera, et cetera, right? The workers in comb flax will be in despair and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are pillars of the land will be crushed and all who work for pay will be grieved. So obviously um, the, the, the economy is going to be devastated during this, okay? However, look at this, Egypt, you get to the next part of it. Egypt is Assyria and Israel. You can see the headline there on your screen, but Egypt, Assyria, and Israel are later going to be blessed. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. 
and the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. This is, and here we go. This is where, again, we're going to get good news. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. So now Egypt's worshiping the true God in Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. Notice the healing here, law and gospel. And they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And then foes that usually were fighting each other are now at peace. And that they, and excuse, oh, sorry, I got to go back to this. I skipped, a, I skipped ahead, sorry, with my mouse there. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So we have hostile world empires fighting each other. But now they're at peace. There's a highway between them and they're worshiping the true God together. Now, the only place that this has really happened in history is in the church to be honest, because we obviously don't have world peace right now. But for the Assyrians and the Egyptians to worship together, they had different religions. They had different languages. They had different customs. They were different different ethnicity. They both had amazing militaries. They were both world empires. They both had rulers of you know absolute authority. For them to get together and worship the one God is truly turning things on its head. This would, this would not have been the case. This is an amazing prophecy from Isaiah. And in the church, we see it, right? Assyrians and Egyptians in the early church did worship together. Um, it's, it's amazing that this actually came true. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That's an amazing statement, um, that God would actually make Egypt and Assyria part of his chosen people. And as some of the representatives of the most hostile Gentile nations that Israel ever dealt with, that's a pretty comforting thought for all of us, that even though we're not Jewish or even though we're not part of God's inheritance necessarily, we can still be blessed and still got, be called God's people. But yeah, during this time, during this time period, this was this was not a common way to think about Egypt and Assyria. Now, we're going to get to a weird, I want to get to two, a couple more passages here um, before we run out of time. we got about 15 minutes or so here. Here's Isaiah 20. We have another sign against Egypt and Cush. Again, uh, this time we actually have Sargon mentioned. Sargon, the king of Syria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. And that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah. Now, this is just strange. This is one of the weirdest. This makes me laugh every time I read this. So I want you to listen to this passage closely and see how you would react if you were Isaiah. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. <laughs> um okay, that's quite the living image that God's having Isaiah do, uh, to uh, engage in, that you have to walk around naked as a way of warning people about something. Bizarre, strange. And this is how the, the Lord uses it. Then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years. Three years? Check that. Isaiah is walking naked and barefoot for three years? I, I'm not sure if I have the... Uh, the to be honest, the faith to do this, even if I thought I was the chosen prophet of God, this is kind of one of those moments 
where it just seems really, really strange. It's a sign to Egypt and Cush. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Now, the key word here is ashamed. Okay, so nakedness was an idea of ritual shaming. It doesn't necessarily mean anything sexualized. Uh, remember that even in the book of Genesis, the reason that Adam and Eve hide and then tried to clothe themselves is because they're ashamed. The word shame is big. So this is an honor shame culture. So, so to have your nakedness exposed was a way of being ritually shamed. Um, is, uh, for, for Isaiah, as a Jewish man of high culture and of high understanding, for him to do this would have been shocking to the people that were around him. That's how serious this judgment would have been seen by the ancient Israelites. Some people would have thought he was pretty crazy, okay? Um, and then eventually what's gonna happen is, of course, is these other these other cultures, um, right? The, the Assyrians are going to actually defeat the Egyptians and the Cushites, and they are going to be led out naked, which means they're going to be absolutely and utterly humiliated and shamed. And so how will they escape? What's gonna happen? How is this all gonna sol solve itself? We had a hint of it in the previous chapter. But I'm just curious, you know, you don't have to chat anything right now, but just something to consider. How would you react, I mean, to that that sort of uh, that sort of command? Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off the sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. And then the Lord says, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years. I just, <laughs> I mean, part of it's humorous in a way. It seems so awkward. But at the same token, it shows how serious not only did Isaiah take God, but it shows you how serious the shame is going to be um, for the Egyptians, who are one of the most powerful nations on the earth. Okay, so anyways, just wanted to say that it's kind of a strange passage in Isaiah. You get to that and you can see how when you first read it, you're just kind of confused on what's going on. But when you think in terms of an honor shame culture, this passage makes a lot more sense um, moving forward. Okay, and then we get to Isaiah 21. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Okay, and you can see all the different uh, nations that are brought in here. Okay. Um, and it's kind of interesting how it talks about this. So ba Babylon is fallen. And a similar statement is, is made actually in the book of Revelation, which is why some people think this actually refers to the refers to the devil a little bit. OK, so this I just want to let's read a little of this just to kind of get the, the flavor of it here. OK, it says as the whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on the, the Negev or the Negev is the desert part of Egypt that's across the Sinai off the Red Sea. So the desert part of Egypt, I mean, sorry, of Israel. Um, as whirlwinds in the negative sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elon, lay siege, O Medea, all, or Media, sorry, all the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord has said to me, go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Okay, so then you can see how this kind of works. Fallen, fallen, this is famous. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods has he shattered to the ground. On my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, O God of Israel, I announce to you. Okay, so this, notice that in, in multiple parts of, of, of Isaiah here, not just in this chapter, but in a couple of the previous chapters that we've had too, God continually uses this agricultural metaphor, the idea that 
there's like a like a threshing floor or a separation of the wheat and the chaff. These are images that Jesus is going to run with in the New Testament. Then, so whenever you see things about like a threshing floor or a winnowing winnowing hook, which is kind of like a kind of like a pitchfork of sorts where they would use to kind of separate grain from crops and that sort of thing. So if you see these agricultural metaphors, um, that's very, very common because it's a very agricultural agrarian society, we, we would say, um, as far as things go. So again, God is doing this. He has, there's a threshing floor idea here. There's this idea of separating um, the good from the bad. So on my thresh, verse 10 in particular, on my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce unto you. Okay, so that's where we have the idea that, and it's almost always kind of God's both law and gospel, his judgment of those who are the chaff, and also the blessedness state of those who are the wheat, the people that are gathered into the barn in the great harvest. So there's that kind of both and law gospel dialectic. Okay, then we have other places that are judged. We have Dumas, we have Arabia. So now you, you can see all those different places too on your map. Again, if you took a, if you took a map of Israel and drew a circle around it for like a three or 400 mile radius, we've pretty much got it all covered that all of these places are, are going to fall in addition to Israel itself being judged. And yet all these other places are going to have a remnant restored. Okay. So we're almost to the end of this section. I want, I got about one or two left and then I'll, I have a couple comments here. So 22, we get an Oracle concerning, concerning Jerusalem, the Valley of vision. Okay. So it's kind of interesting. So let's let's look through this one. I'm going to spend a little more time because now we're back into Israel itself after taking that little te that uh, geographic tour around the the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean world. Okay, so here's how it's, here's how this goes. The oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with a sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep with bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord, God of hosts, has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, sorry, I'll highlight this. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls and the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Now this is another. This is a siege being described. Okay, so the house of the forest, right? That's foreign. That's a foreign delegation. And now we have. Uh, there's a water supply being built. They've taken houses. They've actually demolished houses and uh, put them to help reinforce the walls. So a siege of Jerusalem is what's in mind here. When the enemy army would surround, so you're you're increasing your battlements. You're fortifying your walls. You're finding a water supply because siege tactics back then, and really up until modern times was not to just assault the wall. Siege tactics almost always were to starve your enemy or to uh, or, or cut off their water supply, so they were forced to surrender. That's always the goal, okay? In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to the steward who is over the household and say to him, 
What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. And so, in other words, during this whole time, this whole time, there are people that are taking advantage of this and God's going to take them down also. Okay, look at this. But later on, and this is the big part. Here's the gospel part, okay? Uh, and he will be a father. It's going to talk about the servant Eliakim. And look at this. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on to him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. and It will cut down and fall, and the Lord that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Kind of a strange prophecy involving a siege and then some figures that we don't really know much about in Scripture. So if you follow, um, if you have uh, like a study Bible or something in front of you, and I have mine here. Um, you, I can hold it up to the screen, my, uh, my Lutheran study Bible. And it mentions these, these different figures here, that my, my, my figures, okay? Um, they're given stations of authority, so there's like a robe, a sash, and and that sort of thing. Using secure tents, the theme of trust and responsibility that sounds this leadership of Eliakim. Eliakim seems to be the ideal leader, but he is only a man. So collapse will come from both within the man and from without the from the Lord without. Apart from the Lord, no one is sufficient. The result of trusting in a man, even as one is capable, Eliakim is deadly. So everything's going to wither away ultimately. So even what seems to be the ideal ruler um, is going to be brought down in that sense. Okay. So then God ups the ante one more time and we get an oracle concerning Tyre and Sidon. This is Lebanon. So the ships of Tarshish, Tyre, Tyre, Tarshish, sorry, that's a, that's a tongue twister if there ever was one for a biblical place name, the ships of Tarshish. Okay. Um, for Tyre is weighed laced without house or harbor from the land of Cyprus. Cyprus is an island off the coast there. The merchants of Sidon who cross the sea have filled you. So we're going to get this very uh, this very prosperous uh, nation trades. These were nation states that had tons of money. They prospered because they were trading on the Mediterranean coast. So they were very, very wealthy. And they dealt with uh, exotic goods and had spices and silks and those sort of things. And so God goes after them. Then he says the land of the Chaldeans, which is, again, back to Assyria and Babylon. And he's warning that the same thing's going to happen to Tyre, Tarshish, Lebanon, present-day Lebanon. Okay. At the end of the 70 years, it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp and go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody. Sing many songs that you may be remembered. Okay. And then look at this. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will simply uh, abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. So again, we get gospel right at the very end. The Lord will visit Tyre after the judgment and will actually uh, be blessed again and actually be a blessing for other nations. So we have Tyre and Sidon. Um, again, it's just it's it's amazing trying to go through this. And then God's going to judge the entire earth. And so you could see how this just keeps uh, escalating and escalating. And then look at verse, look at chapter 25. This is where this is where we'll get the last word. And I really want to focus on this on the next class. God will swallow up death forever. And so I'm just using the ESV. So if you're following along on the headlines here, it's it's amazing to see the rhythm of this. We talk about law and gospel. So I'm going to go back. Look at how this goes. This is the, this is the uh, territory that we've covered today. And again, I'm not reading every individual verse because it would just take too long and not everything is relevant. And if I did that, we'd be in Isaiah for two years. But let's let's go. So here's how it starts. We started in, in chapter 15. 
So this starts with an oracle concerning Moab, okay, which continues into 16. Then in 17, an oracle concerning Damascus. So Syria is going to fall. Then we go to chapter 18, an oracle concerning Cush, which of course is going to fall. We go to chapter 19, an oracle concerning Egypt, which of course is going to fall. Chapter 20, Egypt and Cush together. Another sign is against them. Isaiah 21, Babylon is fallen. So Babylon has now been taken out. Isaiah 22, things are going to happen in Jerusalem and Israel itself. Isaiah 23, Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon are going to be taken out. So if you keep looking at these headlines, I mean, there's this theming. And you, I can, I'll be honest, if you're not in the right frame of mind, this is where has, and even I, I'm happy to admit this to you, my eyes kind of glaze over and I'm reading scripture and I'm just kind of like, you know, taking a nap or something because it just seems like it's over and over and over. Um, but it is God's word. So I try to discipline myself and break it down. And for me, it's history. History helps me understand what's going on here. But then we, then we have, so remember, we've kind of increased the circle, all these nations, including Israel. Now we're going to the entire earth, right? So God's going to judge the entire earth. This is what we mean by the day of the Lord, okay? The day of the Lord's coming. And then after the day of the Lord, God will swallow up death forever. And so that's our ultimate hope here, is that after all these judgments, that death itself will be eliminated. And that's, that's a, it's a brilliant promise. And the, and the poetry there is, is pretty neat. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on his mountain, and Moab shall be trampled in his place. As straw is trampled in a dunghill, he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay down his pompous pride and the skill of his hands. Okay, and so it's interesting that the Lord is going to swallow up death. Here's the really famous quote from Isaiah 20, uh, Isaiah 25. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from them. For the Lord has spoken. So there we go. There's our hope during Advent, that God, God in the end, we win. God is going to swallow up death forever, that all the tears from our faces are going to be gone, that our reproach is going to be taken away, that death itself is going to be swallowed up. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul where he says, uh, you know, grave, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy, st thy sting? He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. And as I've said before, he's trash talking death there. This, this really kind of shows that. And I need to hear this. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest with you as, as your teacher and as uh, somebody who's in leadership at the church, at least in a little bit of leadership as an elder and a deacon. I mean, I'm not that important, but, you know, I've been given some roles. But um, as that person, I struggle sometimes seeing the final destination to see that, you know, what is the end of all this? You look at our political situation, you look at protesting, you look at the pandemic, you look at all the stuff going on and we can parse those out and, you know, analyze, you know, this, the truth behind the news and those sort of things. And I'm not saying that's unimportant, but I personally struggle sometimes with remembering my final destination that if I'm sick or if I'm, you know, if I, if I have anxiety or if I'm struggling at work or whatever it is that's going on, I often do not have this perspective that God is going to swallow up death forever. And so, you know, do you, you know, this, there's an old, uh, it's not, well, it's old now. It wasn't old, you know, 20 years ago, but the Pirates of the Caribbean series, I don't know if you know that Pirates of the Caribbean, the movie series, there's a character in it. If you haven't seen those named Davy Jones, and he's kind of this kind of spiritualized, but yet still man creature that's been cursed in some way to harvest harvest uh, harvest souls away basically after they die at sea and his his line is do you fear death do you fear death 
do you fear the great abyss? Do you fear the judgment? And he says, if you serve with me for a hundred years, you can postpone the judgment, right? Even though you're kind of cursing yourself, postpone the judgment. And that's that's interesting to think that way, that even in a secular movie, this idea that it, it just plays into this idea that death is feared. And so should we be afraid of death? You know, we say the answer is no, but when you look around the world around us, it's hard not to get anxious, right? With stuff going on, or when you see your friends pass away, or when you see, uh, um, you know, family members suffer and stuff like that, we need to keep constantly being reminded that that God will swallow up death forever, that God will wipe away all those tears and all disease and anxiety and depression and death and suffering is going to go away. And we need to remind ourselves of that. Um, and it's fascinating that we get that in the midst of all these judgments of all the nations of the world and the entire world itself. Um, that God is going to wipe away all the tears from all faces um, that are in him. So I, I, I hope that's encouraging to you um, in, in this season of Advent after all those judgments. It's a heavier class having to teach that and just go through all those chapters. Um, but hopefully, if you want to take some time, I recommend that. Just start just reading. Sometimes it's just important that we just read the text. So start in Isaiah 15 or so and just read until you get to this passage in 25. And I think you'll get the rhythm of how how much of a light or how much of a lift this really is once you get to that part of the text. So um, I've got about one or two minutes. I got to go preach at the 11 o'clock service here. So I'm going to wrap things up here in just a second. Does anybody have any comments or questions for me in the chat bar? If you'd like to unmute yourself, anything for me, feel free to drop me a line, email me. I hope this was a blessing to you in terms of going through Isaiah. I've been learning a lot and uh, I hope it wasn't too dry either. It's just hard when we're going through this much text um, to pick and choose the, the best parts. So again, I just recommend that you find the good spots and focus in on those good spots. Um, and then we'll slow down again because we're getting to pull, uh, close to some sections where we really need to kind of slow in and go kind of verse by verse again. Um, but I wanted to go through all these oracles kind of in a day. So thank you for putting up with my my survey there because it's, it's hard to kind of teach this sort of thing. So I hope it wasn't too dry for you. And I hope uh, you're back next week as we get into really dig into this text. So I will see you later and uh, catch you on the next one. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.